Part One, Chapter Ten of Canada's Hundred Days with the Canadian Corps from Amiens to Mans, August eighth to November eleventh, nineteen eighteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Canada's Hundred Days by John Livesey, Part One, Chapter Ten, Sidelights of Battle. The first fury of the battle being spent. There comes a pause, ten days, have been continually on the move, or in the firing, and a rest for many of the tired troops, who for a week to line. The battalions rest on the line they have reached, troops relieving them, carrying on forward. Throughout these operations weather has been perfect, and for once in our favor. There are no rains to ruin the operation as happened in the salient a year before. Reinforcements and supplies, all gathered beforehand, are brought up with automatic regularity but over everything is a sheet of white dust. The men lie now in the shelter of woods, many sleeping in enemy blankets and enemy dugouts, but the majority bunk on the ground, each man scooping for himself a shallow trench, as it might be the first excavation for a grave, proof against flying shrapnel. With night bombing going on, and by day the enemy's heavy artillery searching likely bits of cover, safety lies in the open ground, but human nature feels less exposed under shelter of trees, and so the woods are populous. Bone-weary, they sleep off their fatigue. But soon the battalion band strikes up. Animated groups gather, talking over the battle and exhibiting their souvenirs, iron crosses, automatic pistols, field glasses, old-fashioned key-winding watches, officers' swords, regimental rings, shoulder straps and buttons cut off protesting prisoners, queer wooden tobacco pipes quaintly carved all manner of gear. A knot of men are gambling with sheafs of boldly printed paper marks, ten marks to the franc is their rate of exchange, not foreseeing the time but a few months away, when in Belgium each of those marks is to be worth one franc thirty centimes. The men are in the best of moods and willingly talk about their exploits. First we come across Brutinel's independent force. This consists of two Canadian motor machine-gun brigades, a six-gun Newton mortar section and a wireless section, all mounted in armored cars, together with the Canadian Corps Cyclist Battalion. The force came straight up to the line and went into action with no rest. For three days they were hard at it, and Saturday night was their first sleep. It was good fun, said one of them, the first chance we've had to do any fighting in our proper capacity. Did you hear how one of our cyclists took a village down on the Roy Road? He was scouting and rode through the village full tilt, steering with one hand, and with the other emptying his automatic into flabbergasted fritzies. He kept going right through, and when one of our armored cars came up behind, the whole garrison surrendered. Good sport it was along the Roy Road that day, some real hunting. The Amiens-Roy Road here traverses a difficult country, bisected by ravines and bordered by woods offering excellent positions for machine-gun nests. Here at times the armored cars were held up and lost heavily. An enemy gun made a direct hit on one car, killing three of the crew and cutting off the armor of the gunner. Removing the body of the driver, this man, Corporal Cruz of Ottawa, swung round the shattered car, bringing it safely back into our lines. Then he died. Less tragic was the experience of the crew of a ration lorry, which in the twilight ran through our lines on the Roy Road, and only pulled up when challenged by an enemy sentry. Him they bayoneted but it was too good to last. The Boche came back with bombs and put the lorry out of commission. Our men, however, 
though all wounded, crawled back to our lines in the darkness. Faced with the loss of their rations, the unit advanced and recaptured the lorry, towing it back in triumph. Padres are strictly non-combatant and unarmed. But when the 78th Battalion of Winnipeg captured Halu, they found their chaplain, Captain Deesom, already in possession with eight prisoners. I went up there to help the boys through, he said, with cigarettes and things, but I found I'd blundered in ahead of the battalion. There was nothing else to do but put a bold face on it, and these fellows here thought they were surrounded. The padre had a bullet wound in his cheek, and four through his tunic, a perfectly good coat ruined. Old front line, they called him, and told how, at Passchendaele, strictly against orders, he was in the front line burying our dead, when up comes the divisional senior chaplain. A reprimand was due, but, "'Have you another spade?' was all the colonel said. Here is another story of a padre, Father R. McGillivray of Antagonish, Nova Scotia, chaplain of the 5th Brigade, while ministering to the wounded where they fell on the field of battle south of Relly, was forced to take shelter in a shell-hole, where he found the remnants of a company, of which all officers were casualties. An enemy field-battery a few hundred yards away was firing over open sights. Grasping the situation, Father McGillivray called out, "'Boys, we may as well die fighting!' He leaped up from the shell-hole and rushed the battery, followed by his brave boys. The boys say he terrified the Huns, as with a wild war-whoop and brandishing his cane he landed in their midst. The rest of the story is short as all hands went up in the cry of comrade. The prisoners were numbered off and the guns were marked, captured by the 26th Battalion. Some wag remarked it should have been, captured by Canadian chaplain service. In the dense mist of the kick-off on Thursday, a section of five men of the 13th Battalion, Montreal Highlanders, got separated from their unit and, groping their way about, came suddenly upon an enemy trench fully manned. The corporal, no whit abashed, gave the word to fire, when one after another over a hundred Boches came tumbling out of the trench, hands up. The five men safely delivered the batch at the divisional cage. So great was the number of prisoners on the first day that we could not spare escorts. They were told to go to the rear and for the most part went quietly. Two mounted men marshaled back over a thousand from the divisional to the corps cage. But they were not all like this. Three stout Württembergers seized a broken-down tank and turned its guns on the back of our men, inflicting casualties. They put up a stiff defense, but presently out of the blue a bombing plane swooped down and dropped a bomb neatly on top of the tank. Nothing was more inspiring to our men than the fine cooperation of the tanks, commanded by imperial officers. Each ran his own show, and although there was a good deal of confusion in the fog, a gallant and resourceful lot they were. Many were our tried comrades, for they had fought with us at Vimy. "'We will go anywhere with the Canadians,' said one of them. "'Such a show as you put on has never been seen in this war.' Much the same thing was said on a later day by an officer of an imperial heavy battery." We would sooner be with you than with any one, for we know that your wounded infantry will exploit to the last yard the work of the gunners. But the tanks suffered heavily, particularly in the wooded country. This is what a staff officer of the 11th Brigade witnessed. A tank section of three was advancing in line ahead of our infantry, when from the next field a battery opened at point-blank range. The first tank burst into flames, its course was run. The second stopped, and the third also burst into flames. Then the second tank moved forward again, stopped, burst into flames. Out of the manhole crawled two men, suffocating. A third thrust his arm from a gun port, waving back the infantry, 
flames licked out to his hand. In the early stage of the advance of the 54th Battalion from the Kootenay came upon a wood alive with Boche, strongly entrenched in defences the tanks had overrun. It was impossible to pass by without being mown down by flank fire. Seeing that his three companies in line were closely engaged, the battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel A. B. Carey of Nelson, British Columbia, took personal command of the reserve company, organized it for defense, and then led it in attack on a corner of the wood in face of heavy machine-gun fire. That portion of the wood thus cleared, the other companies were enabled to outflank it, capturing the garrison and proceeding to their objectives. These incidents, selected at random, might be multiplied an hundredfold, and they leave untouched the record of public honors, of V.C.s and the like. They were garnered from these tired men, gathered round their campfires, stitching rents made by barbed wire, or drying out their sweaty shirts. Wonderful indeed their spirit. For the most part they went into battle after long marches and sleepless nights, and only their superb condition, fine discipline, and unquenchable ardor carried them through. To go perhaps two or three days without sleep and but little food will try the stoutest heart. It was precisely into such a state of mind that during a lull in the battle one's inquiries were directed. Crossing the channel but a few days before, one had been struck by the fact that the nearer one got to the front line, the clearer was the note of confidence. In London, as in Montreal or Winnipeg, the defeatist had been at work. One had met but a day or two before a highly placed Canadian officer, who despaired of victory, and as for the politicians, with them it had become a question whether the Sammies were to be in time to save us, whether we could keep going till the spring of 1919 but these fellows had taken the measure of the Boche, and they knew that he was beaten, if not this year, then surely the next. But even here are discriminations. Hot-blood youth doesn't care how long a war goes on. It is his great adventure. To him it is a lovely war. But fathers of families, staid citizens enlisted only from an imperative sense of duty, these have a different angle. "'Shan't we have peace this fall?' asked a tough old blue-nose. One points out that we can have a peace at any time, but such a peace as is only a truce. Never that, he replies. We'll fight it out here and now. I can't leave it to my boy. We're all fed up with the war, that's a cinch, says the NCO of a Saskatchewan battalion. None of us like it, but we'll carry through to October 1919, if that's your date, or 1920 if we must. But the peace must be the real thing. We must rub Fritzy's nose in the dust, good and plenty. And then there is the company of adventurers, old prospectors from the mountains, trappers of the wild, shanty men from the backwoods, men whose whole life has been a gamble with death, and for these war is the greatest game of all. This is a real good show and we shan't be satisfied till we're in again, says one. And there is a private who fought with the 52nd Battalion in front of Damery, military medal and bar, who works on survey parties out of Edmonton, Alta. The best fun I ever had, he said. I've had many a moose fight, and have tussled with the grizzlies in the Rockies, but this beat all. I used up two of our rifles, and then grabbed a Boche, fired all my ammunition, and two bandoliers more, borrowing off the men who came up in support. My rifle got so hot I had to work the bolt with my foot. The longest range was two hundred yards, most of it seventy-five to a hundred, and every shot a bull. One of our Lewis guns fired off thirty-four pans, I'd never seen so much dead in my life. It was like spraying a potato patch. Our colonel is a real general, or our number would have been up. 
The men are wonderful, so too are the battalion officers, and one cannot withhold one's admiration from the juniors, who shared the dangers of the rank and file as their casualties show, and yet carried the added responsibility of leadership. Here is the story of a posthumous Victoria Cross, Lieutenant Brilliant of the 22nd Battalion, French-Canadians. For the most conspicuous gallantry and almost superhuman devotion to duty during the operations of August 8th and 9th, the official record goes, he was in charge of a company which he led during the two days with absolute fearlessness and extraordinary ability and initiative. At about one o'clock in the afternoon of August 9th, just after the day's attack had begun, his company's left flank was held up by an enemy machine gun. He rushed in and captured the gun, personally killing two of the gun crew. While doing this he was wounded in the thigh, but he refused to be evacuated. A little after three o'clock the same day his company was held up by heavy machine gun fire from a machine gun nest in a group of houses. He personally reconnoitred the ground, organized a party of two platoons, and rushed straight for the machine gun nest. Here one hundred and fifty Germans and fifteen machine guns were captured. The lieutenant personally killed five Germans, and being wounded a second time, now in the shoulder which he had immediately dressed, again refused to be evacuated. At about six in the evening of the same day he saw a field gun firing on his men, with open sights from a neighboring wood. He immediately organized and led a rushing party towards the gun. After progressing about six hundred yards he was seriously wounded in the abdomen. In spite of this third wound, he continued to advance some two hundred yards when he fell unconscious from exhaustion and loss of blood. His wonderful example throughout the day fired his men with an enthusiasm and fury which largely contributed towards the battalion's noble achievements. This was in the attack of Mehericourt. He died that night. Another posthumous V.C. was Lieutenant James Edward Tate of the 78th Battalion of Winnipeg for most conspicuous bravery and initiative in attack. The advance on Halu, having been checked by intense machine-gun fire, Lieutenant Tate rallied his company and led it forward with consummate skill and dash under a hail of bullets. A concealed machine-gun, however, continued to cause many casualties. Taking a rifle and bayonet, Lieutenant Tate dashed forward alone and killed the enemy gunner, crying, "'Come on, boys! The 78th don't mind machine-guns!' Inspired by his example, his men rushed the position, capturing twelve machine-guns and twenty prisoners. Later, when the enemy counter-attacked our positions under intense artillery bombardments, this gallant officer displayed outstanding courage and leadership, and though mortally wounded by a shell, continued to direct and aid his men until his death. Owing to the exigencies of the British press censorship in France, whose instructions from general headquarters was that, for a certain period, the participation in this great battle of the Canadian Corps must not be published, the people of Canada learned of the victory two or three days before they became aware of the conspicuous part taken in it by their sons and brothers. It was indeed a Canadian Corps battle, planned by the Corps, and zero-hour fixed by the Corps. What that part was is best summed up in the words of an impartial critic, the special correspondent in France of the London Times. Reviewing the course of events a few weeks later, he says, In the first scene of our offensive, which began August 8th, the actors were chiefly overseas. Men from the British Isles took only a small part of the attack north of the Somme to protect the flank of the Australians. South of the river, below here on the main battlefront, the honour of the first advance was shared by the Australians and Canadians. In structure it was chiefly a Canadian battle. 
it was their advance on the loose that was the core and crux of the operation, and on their progress depended the advance of the Australians on their left, and that of the successive French armies on their right, each of which was thrown in only as the advance above it prospered. The Canadians, I think, are right in claiming that the fighting of these first two days was the biggest thing Canada has done in the war, not excepting the recapture of Vimy Ridge. Certainly nothing could have been better. The Canadian Corps, flushed with victory, was to go on to bigger things yet. The impression one bore away of the Amiens show was a kind of picnic. There, indeed, the Viennes were war rations, and the skittle alleys, machine-gun emplacements. But where, nevertheless, there was, after the dreary months of the trenches, a sense of change and holiday, sight of green fields and growing things, a clatter of movement and good humour. We were going back to quite a different thing, to the long road stretching from Arras to Cambrai, a field of bloody footsteps, mire, and death. End of Part 1, Chapter 10